If you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode four of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history. Hey everyone, thanks so much for taking time to listen to the podcast. In episode four, I'm going to share with you the first chapter of my book, New Wineskins in the Simple Words of Christ. And in this chapter, I talk about what it means to truly make Jesus the Lord of our lives. And I also give a couple of quotes from the earliest Christians that clearly demonstrate how they believe that Jesus is God and that we should therefore relate to him as Lord God in all that we do. If you're blessed by this episode, I would really appreciate it if you'd leave an honest review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me at my website, reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com, or you can email me at email philsbaker at gmail.com. That's email philsbaker at gmail.com. Finally, if you'd like to get a copy of my book about this journey that Jesus and the early Christians have taken me on, you can purchase it on Amazon. And again, if it's a blessing to you, please leave me an honest review there. Once again, it's called New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ. All right, let's go ahead and get episode four rolling. If you're reading this and you refereed any of my church league basketball games when I was a kid, I need to ask your forgiveness. I'm sorry for cursing you out. I especially apologize to that referee in my senior year who threw me out of a game for dropping multiple F-bombs in his face and then gave my team another technical foul due to my continuing to curse him from the bleachers. I also apologize to my parents who witnessed those countless episodes of their Christ-professing youngest child letting a love for basketball dictate his approach toward Christianity rather than letting his love for Christ dictate his approach toward basketball. God blessed me with a mother and father who loved him and were committed to putting their children in an environment where they could learn to love him as well. So, We went to our medium-sized, mostly white, Southern Baptist church in Houston, Texas every Sunday. We were very active in church. My parents taught well-attended Sunday school classes. My mom sang in the choir. As a child, I was in Royal Ambassadors, which is basically Christianity's version of Boy Scouts. I sang in the children's choir and was also a faithful attender of Sunday school. I thought I was a pretty good kid. Yeah, I was a bit hyperactive at times, especially when the Sunday school teachers foolishly brought donuts for us. And yes, one children's choir teacher promised me baseball cards each week if I'd stay calm, but at least I wasn't purposefully collapsing tables on other kids. I loved going to that church, and in some respects, 
It still feels like home whenever I pop in. My second grade Sunday school teachers were very compassionate people and very evangelistically minded. They had to be compassionate people to voluntarily spend an hour with a room full of wild seven-year-olds every week, and they quickly recognized in every one of us our need for a Savior and were committed to communicating that message to us each week. We were told that if we believed Jesus, the Son of God, is Lord, that He died for us on the cross for our sins, and that He rose back to life on the third day, and if we asked Him to forgive us for our sins and invited Him into our hearts, then all the bad things we did would be forgiven, we could call ourselves Christians, and when we died, we would go to heaven. Well, the next step was to go in front of the congregation tell everybody what we decided and let them clap for us and hug us, you know, so the congregation would form a huge line that hug us and tell us how proud of us they were. And at the beginning of the service, the next week, we'd go into this pool above where the choir sang, would say yes to these same statements that we'd say yes to, that we'd said yes to before. We'd get dunked, we'd hear everybody clap again, and after the service, get hugged and congratulated by a bunch of people once more. And, you know, this all sounded like a good deal to me. And my friends had already done it. So I thought, I believe God exists. I believe Jesus exists. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he rose again. I want to go to heaven. I want to be a Christian. Let's do this. Lord Jesus Please forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross and rose from the dead. Please come into my heart. Now that may seem like a sweet, innocent little moment. But as I've reflected on that scene, there are some big problems going on. For one, since early childhood, I was a jerk. What proved more detrimental to my relationships, though, was that I was absolutely oblivious to this truth. I definitely thought I was morally superior to my classmates. So when I was told that I needed Jesus to forgive me of my sins, I almost felt entitled to that forgiveness. It's kind of like a student who gets the highest grade in the class on a test, maybe a 95 while the others fail miserably. And with such a drastic discrepancy between the one student and all the others, the student with the 95 goes to the teacher and says, I worked really hard, and it showed. Clearly, I respect you and your class vastly more than all the others. Will you please forgive my slight error and, and grant me five extra credit points? Well, if one doesn't think there is much to be forgiven of, one won't think there are many changes needing to be made in one's character. I certainly didn't think I was evil, even though Jesus called his own disciples evil in Luke chapter 11. In my mind, I was already a really good person, one of the best in my group, and now Jesus was going to be in my heart forever. Score one for Jesus! Invite Jesus into your heart. Interestingly, you'll never find that line in the Bible. 
It's not there. Have you ever seriously considered the implications of asking Jesus into your heart as it regards the issue of salvation? Let me give you a few examples of what I'm getting at. Once or twice a month, my wife and I used to host a small group from the church that I pastored. And when they would arrive at our home, we'd invite them in, and they were free to enjoy the AC, the couches, the food, and the drinks, and the restroom, etc. We treated them like family. However, there were areas of the house that were closed off to them. There was also a time where they were welcome to arrive, and a time when things needed to wrap up and folks needed to go back to their homes. They were invited guests. Twice during the time Stephanie and I have been married, we invited a college-age youth worker from our previous church that needed a place to stay to live with us. And each one was provided with a key to our house, access to our cars if needed, food if we cooked, their own room, their own bathroom, etc. However, even though they had their own room and even a key to the house, Stephanie and I owned the home. Though we loved having them stay with us and never had any reason to kick either one of the youth workers out, we could have if we wanted to. The house belonged to us. They were merely invited to stay with us in a room of our house. So are you starting to see where I'm going with this? Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I believe that's true. But do you know what you're getting into when you call Jesus your Lord? The word Lord means master. It implies ownership. But who is the Lord? Is it Shiva? Is it Baal? No. When Jesus was born... An angel appeared to shepherds watching their flocks and said, Today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's Luke chapter 2, verse 11. And here we see that Jesus is called Savior, Christ, and Lord. One chapter earlier, in Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 47, after Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, confirmed that Mary would give birth to Messiah Jesus, Mary replied, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Now, who was Luke saying is both Lord and Savior? Aren't they both God? Well, yes. And so Luke now connects the dots for us to show that Jesus is also God. There are many examples in the Bible showing that Jesus is God. But for now, I'll just give you one more in detail. In John chapter 2, Jesus has just cleansed the temple, and the religious leaders are infuriated. They ask Jesus what sign he will give to show that he has the authority to do such a thing. And he replies, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's verse 19. John then states, But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. 
Okay, so who did Jesus say would raise him from the dead? Well, he said he would raise himself. Yet Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, who raised Jesus from the dead? Jesus or God? Well, the Bible teaches that Lord Jesus is God. The speculation that Christians only began to teach the divinity of Jesus after the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD is simply untrue. Emperor Constantine did not come up with that doctrine. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible consistently affirms that Jesus is God. And it's no wonder then that Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch, and the disciple of the Apostle John wrote to the Tralian Christians in 105 CE, continue in intimate union with Jesus Christ, our God. And in an early document that's well respected by the early Christians called A Letter to Diognetus, it is written, Truly God himself, who is almighty, the creator of all things, and invisible, has sent from heaven and placed among men the one who is the truth and the holy and incomparable, comprehensible word. God did not, as one might have imagined, send to men any servant, angel, or ruler, but rather he sent the very creator and fashioner of all things by whom he made the heavens. As a king sends his son, who is also a king, God sent him. He sent him as God. If Jesus is both Lord and God, if the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, which by definition includes our hearts, I'm not sure he will accept being merely a guest or even a renter. Jesus demands that you sign over the title to the house. Now let's take a look at just a few of Jesus' words concerning this matter. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 35 says, this is Jesus, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Again, Jesus says in Luke 14, 31 through 33, What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions." And finally, Jesus said in John 12, 25 through 26, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. 
Now, these passages don't sound like your typical gospel presentations. You don't hear many evangelists using these verses before altar calls, asking people to come give their lives away for Jesus. We read these words and want to say, Take it easy, Jesus. No one's going to follow you if you keep on talking like that. You're being too extreme. Those words are not seeker-friendly. Do you even want any of those folks to come back next week? I'm going to be honest with you. As often as I teach from those verses and preach from them, a part of me cringes when I think about them. As I wrote in the introduction, I like doing what I want when I want. I like shower-free Thursdays, even if Stephanie is not a fan of my post-Wednesday manly musk. I like eating mass quantities of fried okra and fried chicken until I'm agonizing with stomach pains on the bedroom floor, begging Stephanie to bring me some fiber pills and large glasses of water. I like to watch Netflix or Sunday night football way past my bedtime and then not be able to go to sleep and have to wake up to taking an, or sorry, have to take an Ambien only to wake up feeling like a zombie the next morning. You know, I like doing me. What I don't particularly enjoy, though, is relinquishing control. However, when a controlling personality desires to enter into a relationship with the Lord of heaven and earth while remaining in control and reaping all of his benefits, what results is a big mess. And because I approached Jesus in this way for so long, I experienced mess after mess. In Matthew 9, disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked why his disciples don't regularly fast like they and the Pharisees do. Setting aside two days a week to fast was a common practice of the Pharisees at that time. And Jesus responds by basically telling them that groomsmen preparing for a wedding don't fast while they still have the prospective groom in their company. But once the groom is married and taken away from them, they will get back to fasting. And there are several points our Lord is making here, but I believe the main thrust is that in the lives of his followers, who Jesus is, what he teaches, and what he has come to do takes precedent over everything else. He states, Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst the new wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. See, new wine expands as it ferments. New wineskins can handle new wine because new wineskins will expand with the fermenting wine. However, old wineskins have already reached their capacity for expansion. So when new wine is poured into old wineskins, the new wine will literally cause the skins to burst, thus causing a huge mess and wasting both the new wine and old wineskins. My seven-year-old self thought I could keep the old wineskins of being both self-righteous and self-governing while following Jesus, and that's just not going to work. 
It's kind of like the time my dad and I put together the basketball goal that's currently sitting in my driveway. Two grown men who've put many things together in the past don't need to completely depend upon the the instructions, right? I mean, those instructions are just suggestions, aren't they? The instructions said the entire assembly would take around two hours. It took us two days. The reason? We did not get first things first and fully submit ourselves to the instructions. Maybe you feel like you've tried the whole Christian thing and it didn't work for you. Well, let me ask you a question. Did you truly get first things first and submit yourself fully to the instructions? The instructions say, Jesus must become your Lord. If you don't submit your entire self to him as Lord, the whole Christian thing is not going to work. God has only designed it to work according to the instructions. True Christianity isn't designed for Jesus to only have access to a piece of your heart. It is made for him to own it all. Now, Jesus is more gracious, merciful, and patient than you can comprehend. He gave his entire life for you. And when you repent of your sins and give your entire life back to him, he gives his life back into you through the Holy Spirit. And as you walk with him each day, he begins to transform you into a new person and will make you more like God him. This is what's happened in my life. Jesus not only burst my early wineskins, but also several more as well, so that his new wine could take over fresh wineskins that would let him be himself in me. So much has changed since Jesus started helping me approach him with new wineskins. And I'm sure that referees throughout the Houston area are thankful. In the next several chapters, I'll cover several different aspects of Jesus and his teachings and the blessings of approaching him with new wineskins. Well, that was the end of chapter one, and I pray it was a blessing to you. But I need to ask you a question now. Have you made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? In light of all that he's done for you, in light of him giving his all for you, have you given your all back to him? Jesus has gone all in for you. He has proven that he loves you. He has done that 2,000 years ago when he gave his life for you on the cross. He's proven his love and he's proven his power by, on the third day, rising again from the grave, proving that he is more powerful than death, proving that he keeps his word, that he is faithful and that he's true, and that he can give you a new life, a new hope, a new power to live victoriously through him in the world. And just as he went all in for you, 
Won't you go all in with Jesus today? Today is the day of salvation. God bless you. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which float be of sin, the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. These for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. In my hands no prize I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. God of mercy, God of grace, God of love, you took my place. I deserved all hell could bring, rock of ages cleft for me. breath when my eyes shall close in death when I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on thy throne O rock of ages cleft for me let me hide myself in thee O God of Rock of ages cleft for me.